I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Parallax Views listeners, on this edition of the program, we're going to be having a fascinating conversation with the always engaging Thomas Ferguson, author of The Golden Rule, The Investment Theory of Party Competition, and The Logic of Money-Driven Politics, as well as a researcher at the Institute for New Economic Thinking, where he has co-authored a new working paper alongside his colleagues Paul Jorgensen and G. Chen that'll be the subject of our conversation. That paper is entitled The Knife Edge Election of 2020, American Politics Between Washington, Kabul, and Weimar. Now I know you may be thinking to yourself, what is left to be said about the 2020 election. Well, according to Thomas Ferguson, a lot. And furthermore, an in-depth analysis of the election may prove useful ahead of the 2022 midterms and the next presidential election in 2024. In the course of our conversation, you'll hear Tom and I talk about the role COVID, the wildcat strikes, Black Lives Matter, and even agriculture or farm politics played in the 2020 election. All that and more on this edition of Parallax Views. And with that being said, let's get right to the conversation with Thomas Ferguson of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Welcome back to Parallax Views, a guest I've been meaning to invite back on the show, uh, Thomas Ferguson, uh, known for the great book, The Golden Rule, and uh, also a researcher for the Institute for New Economic Thinking, has a new paper out, co-authored with Paul Jorgensen and Ji Chen, entitled The Knife Edge Election of 2020, American Politics Between Washington, Kabul, and Weimar. so how are you doing first off, uh, Tom? Well, you know, it's pro forma to say I'm glad to be here, but look, it's COVID. And so I'm really glad to be here. There are other, there are so many other things that could have happened. Uh, so I'm fine. Thank you. And uh, I would hope you and your listeners are too. So with regards to this new paper, I'm going to have a bunch of listeners that are saying, uh oh well may- maybe not maybe I have listeners that are smarter than this but uh, I'm I'm assuming there will be at least one or two people that will say why do we have to keep looking back at the 
2020 election. And also they may be wondering, what, what do you mean by the knife edge election? So let's get into why we need to talk about this and what we mean by the knife edge. Okay, well, um, I'm tempted to start with the knife edge. It obviously has two meanings, you know, like one of them is, look, Biden won the election, but he didn't win by an enormous amount. And the Democrats as a party did rather less well than they expected. And that's it. So you got you're you're dealing with a regime that in the end, after the Georgia Senate races, which were in decided in January, not in in November, managed to get 50-50 in the Senate. And they have, you know, it bounces around with people getting sick, running and things. But anyway, seven, eight, nine vote advantage uh, in the House. Um, and in that sense, you're sitting on a knife edge. The whole control of the government uh, could uh, turn over, not the White House, obviously, but the entire Congress in 2022. Uh, now, once you understand that, then I think you get an easy, the, the other, the bigger knife edge is the whole of American politics is rather like sitting on a precipice right now, on the very edge of it. I mean, the um, it was sort of, people were often saying, boy, Biden's got to make a success of it, or we're in deep trouble. I mean, anyone can see that the Trump movement is emerging rather like some of the far right movements in Weimar Germany, uh, although I, I keep pointing out, no, not the Nazis, the German National People's Party uh, is your best uh, comparison. They're an anti-system element. They, they're actually talking about wrecking the system. I mean, just, just, just blowing apart the whole democratic structure. That's clear uh, there. Uh, and you know, depending on how exactly you want to take the particulars, obviously some of them tried to do it on January 6th. Uh, we can all then discuss you know, forever, but that's so. In that sense, it's a double knife edge. Um, now, why do we worry about 2020? That's easy because we're gonna we're living in 2022, uh, uh, and there is going to be another election. And unfortunately, the Biden administration's first effort is clearly failing. I mean, it's just it's just not working as many people had hoped um, from the you know, ever since he he made what I thought was a very intelligent decision to get out of Afghanistan. But then everybody um, in the whole foreign policy and uh, national security state slept through the, the swift fall of uh, the Afghan regime that we were supporting. They were clearly taken by surprise at that. Um, and the result was that stupid, uh, hasty exit that looked and was awful, even if you wanted to get out. Um, and from there, it's been all downhill. And you have a major problem in inflation. Everybody, myself included, somewhat underestimated uh, the how bad that would be, though I, I am far from chicken little on this. We can eventually talk about that. Um, it was paced that the Democrats lost the Virginia election, uh, which I in a that prefigured a formula that I suspect you'll see in 2022, which is we're not Trump, vote for us. It didn't work in Virginia. Um, there. Um, and now they've blown COVID, which was something that I and a lot of other people were early on warning against. In our paper, 
which is, by the way, up on the, uh, it's a working paper on the Institute for New Economic Thinking website, but easy to find. Um, the, we, we sort of laid it out well before it became obvious and before Omicron hit the rest of the United States that the, the errors on COVID policy were really fundamental and were going to lead to serious trouble. They have. And now this combination of Omicron and inflation uh, is hitting the population. We can talk about that, but this, this is a show that is going downhill. And what's more, the administration's response to all of this has been eh, pretty lackluster, frankly. Uh, I mean, they've allowed the Center for Disease Control uh, and uh, their people in charge of uh, COVID policy to just keep talking at cross purposes with one another, making contradictory rulings and doing some stuff that seems to me really foolish, notably the, the one that everybody focuses on that, that, that uh, suggestion that it was just fine to walk out if, if you had COVID after five days without any kind of a test. And now I think the real reason they did that is because uh, they have no tests. <laughs> I mean, it's that simple in large chunks of the United States. We're back to this pathetic business as we were at the very start of the COVID um, epidemic when people were telling you, oh, you didn't need to have masks because they didn't have any masks. I think that's clear that, that that's why they did it, not because masks weren't good for you or wouldn't have saved lives. Anyway, but we, we can get to there. So that, that you want the knife edge, the double knife edge. It's a very close result. Um, and if they blow it, it's not clear what plan B is in terms of keeping American democracy. It's a double knife edge. So before we get into the fine details of the paper, are there any key differences or similarities to the analysis you've done of the, say, 2016 election and the 2020 election? Well, what should people be noting with, with the differences and similarities? Okay, well, the question we asked in the paper is very specifically what changed between 2016 and 2020 in the electorate. Now, the way we wrote that paper somewhat differently. We usually do these in two stages, one that's on money, uh, and then the other one uh, on the voting. Um, now, the problem in 2016 in the voting paper uh, that I did with Ben Page and some other folks, Ji Chen, um, uh, Jake Rothschild, and um, Arturo Chang, uh, what the voting paper had to pick up on the claim that economics didn't have any role in the balloting. I mean, the, the claims very strong, pushed enormously by uh, almost the whole of political science um, and accepted by a large chunk of economists who should have known better um, there. Uh, and in the media, pushed with a lot of American foundations, I would add, who were actually making grants to journalists who would then strangely turn up to trash the paper later, um, was that this was all about race and gender. Now, anybody who studied Trump quickly caught on. That, oh, yeah, race and gender were for sure major themes in that campaign. Um, and indeed, in his whole you know, pre-campaign campaign, where he was setting up to be president of the United States. Uh, along with more than a little bit of dog whistling anti-Semitism and things like that. Uh, but trying to just see that a divorce from the economy is a big mistake. And it was easy to go into the American national election surveys 
and show you, hey, that's just not true. That that particularly uh, something that resulted in a second little paper. The the internet, the standard questions people ask in polls are generally very stupid. They basically don't go beyond some basic demographics. Um, and when they get around to policy, some of the questions, frankly, are highly manipulative, uh, especially on trade policy. If you look below that, and we went into the open-ended questions uh, there, which hard, basically nobody's done for years and years, except John Gear and one or two other people uh, there. Um, we could see that you know you had people who were actually saying different things from what their forced choice questions about trade were. There's a lot of ambivalence in 2016 about trade policy, and Trump really exploited that. I mean, he was very clearly pushing uh, this, if I may speak somewhat carelessly, or, or at least let's say grandly, uh, America first in many senses. It was and an a rebuild America campaign that involved a repudiation of globalization. And, and yeah, that, it, it reminded me not to interrupt you, but it reminded sure. me in some ways. Just interrupt of, me. Hey, it's an interview. Well, I, I was going to say it reminded me in some ways. I, I mean, I don't want to compare the two that much, but uh, th there was a little bit of Perot at times, Ross Perot, maybe in in uh, the rhetoric about trade at times. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. In fact, um, I wrote an old piece on Pearl, <laughs> which actually later his lawyer called me up and he said this was like almost the only sensible piece he'd read on what the guy actually said. Um, yeah, and with the difference, this is that Perot, although guy, they were people were accusing him of being a fascist at the time and things like that. There weren't private army stuff going around. The Trump phenomenon is a little different. We can get into that later. I mean, uh, private armies, nobody had. Uh, but lots of armed individual militia groups, they were around. And he uh, would, I think, encourage them, my reading, when everything is said and done. Um, but anyway, um, so uh, that was the 2016 problem. The 2020 question was, okay, how do you, uh, what changed? Um, and so, and we had the additional problem that there are, I think, some problems with the American National Election Survey at the time when we started this, which was quite some time ago, those things were not out yet. You couldn't get into them. And there, I think there were some problems with the survey weights, bluntly. Um, and so we, we tried to look around that, but we also wanted to exploit political space, meaning the stories about American politics where you treat the whole country as a point, which is what you do when you just take a national poll and announce it. Uh, there is not very helpful. Um, and we, we could see in 2016 that, for example, people who uh, lived in districts that had lots of bad bridges were more prone to vote for Trump, even other things equal. Um, and um, in other words, they were living in precisely the, the dilapidated parts, the most dilapidated parts of the United States, uh, squeezed by years of austerity. So we thought, let's, let's try to do something directly with spatial data, county. And so we use county election data uh, there. And then we uh, did a great deal of integrating that data, which nobody's ever really done before in voting with industrial structure data. That's hard. But look, this is a general interview. There's an appendix on the problems in this. People can read that. They want it. Let's stay. And, and so that paper is about 
um, how did groups change their views? Now that is a slightly that you can easily be misled by that form of the question because it's not like it, it. You don't. It's it's a an emphasis on change, not on uh, like what groups basically supported Trump that just stuck with them. The most obvious cases, like in 2016, it was clear we showed it. We showed it even in the elect the poll data, uh, though you had to work at it. Um, that um, Trump was getting votes in oil-heavy uh, parts of the United States. That was still true in 2020, but there wasn't much to change. Uh, I mean, you know, it just wasn't. And you'll be amazed to discover that people in coal-producing uh, regions stuck with Trump too, right? Um, so we were interested in what 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 did change, and. The first one was to try to analyze the impact of COVID. Um, now, you'd say- There's a lot um, of debate about that too, about like yes. what was the influence of COVID on the election? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there's a number of quite, I mean, quite, I think, sensible papers. These people are not stupid. They were trying to get, that argued that COVID had no impact on the election. Um, and that was true both in the scholarly paper world, but also in the sort of poll-driven media world where you had all these folks uh, coming out afterward with you know this or that poll claiming, oh, they can't find any trace of COVID. Now, this is a very trick. This has a huge problem, and I'll just state it, and then I'm going to just take it and drop it overboard because, uh, again, it's got to be a general interview. The problem is sort of this. In the, by the middle of the election, maybe even by the start of it, it was pretty clear um, that the re Republican, or at least the Trump-oriented Republican electorate, was swallowing whole the stuff about, you know, COVID is alternately a minor problem, not real, some kind of scheme. I mean, you can fill in the blanks, but they were prone to sort of thinking, we don't need masks. We don't want masks. And it's like maybe it's an identity badge that will, you'll forgive my plain English on this because I think it's been so disastrous, will be stupid and not mask. Now, if you start, therefore, by looking at county data and you see that, you know, as more and more cases of COVID get, um, as COVID gets worse in counties, if that turns out that it's Trump, guess what? Guess where COVID gets worse? In heavy Trump counties. Um, they don't wear masks. They don't want to lock down. They don't want to do much of anything except pretend. Um, that They're not voting for Trump because there are more cases of COVID. It's like you it's that they can't believe it. And they don't believe it. And you got to figure some way around that. What we did was to basically... Uh, look at the areas that were high, higher Biden districts and then look at the interaction between that and COVID cases. And what you found is that where COVID was really bad in districts that were not red hot Trump, they turned a lot of votes. In the red hot Trump districts, you don't get any kind of detectable interaction like that. There's still, there's a lot of statistical problems associated with that. The technical term is endogeneity. Um, I think our solution is the best going uh, on that. It's a lot better than people who were trying to do things like use, I mean, they had folks, 
this is to get very inside baseball uh, deaths in meatpacking. They forgot that meatpacking also is characterized by other variables besides heavy COVID, like the workers are black or Hispanic. Um, and those have independent effects. And those are just all bad. Anyway, bottom line on this is we found very easily, I think, that COVID had a real impact. It And bluntly, it turned off a good chunk of the upper middle classes, uh, especially in parts of the country where you got science and technology heavy, um, heavily concentrated workforces in that. That didn't wash uh, very easily. Um, and so uh, bluntly, he lost uh, a lot of vote, maybe enough to swing the election. That, that's a, a tricky call, but for sure, very heavily. Um, then we looked at all these other things that impacted. But you know, the short, blunt answer here is you probably had, I, the, the, I think the Trump White House was correct in thinking in January of 2020 that they were probably going to win it. Uh, despite all the sort of criticism they'd come in for, but before COVID. And that COVID, as Trump later said, changed everything. And that puts a somewhat different face on everything that's happened, and particularly since Biden came in, because he was supposed to fix COVID. They haven't fixed it. Right. I was going to say, and he hasn't. <laughs> so that this could be uh, a big issue in the midterms, too. Um, yeah, what's going to happen, I mean, now, look, it's not, we can pursue this if you want. There are some things about the election we probably ought to talk about. But look, very briefly, um, yeah, I, the, as I read uh, what uh, Biden was, has been, was doing on COVID, um, I, I mean, I was with a group of people that were meeting informally to study this thing. Uh, we were actually meeting more or less formally under the Chatham House rules, which means you don't, nobody has to speak for the record, trying to analyze it. And so we've been looking at this thing pretty closely. Um, and it was obvious to us that things like worker safety, or at least some of us, was obvious to me. Let me I'll speak for myself and only for myself here on that. That uh, worker safety was a huge issue, um, that ocean needed to be in right from the start in any fix on COVID. Uh, now, actually, when they announced the very first uh, sort of transition team, the, there was no real link to OSHA. A lot of people protested. I had a, uh, I don't mind saying as a citizen, not as a social scientist, I thought that was crazy and said so. Um, and they eventually added some people to the transition team. Um, but when they came into power and the transition team dispersed, uh, they were supposed, they had promised to do something on that, particularly on, in the, on that head of OSHA and get OSHA going. They didn't do it. It just sat there for months, months, and months. Um, it, beyond that, there were obvious moves you could make. Like the most important single step would have been to set up a large-scale random testing uh, scheme so that you can actually find out in each large area, you're not going to be able to do it for small areas, say probably even at a county level, though you could in a big city. Um, but you should be able to know in each state what the variants are that are circulated. And you don't have anything like that. It's all, it's a decentralized, probably people would say creative federalism. Well, this has been dead hand of creative federalism 
in statistical reporting with different, yeah, I mean, you can't even get agreement on when somebody dies of COVID. If that sounds crazy, it's not. Um, and you can, you can see how certain parts of the country just don't uh, use the same criteria, especially rural areas. I mean, there, if you're not dead with a sign that says I died of COVID, they probably won't count you. And hardly anybody will admit to a being infected on an airline and stuff like that. I mean, they just, it's, and, and uh, so the, they didn't do that big testing effort. They should have handed out free uh, N or KN95 masks. The difference is, you know, whether you make them in the U.S. or China, in the globalized world, take any good N95 mask you can get your hands on. Um, they should have handed those out free to every American. The Trump administration briefly considered that. Then they didn't do it. They did not do that. They, they could have also and should have organized the chaotic marketplaces um, that where people are allowed to sell garbage masks as real masks. You know, that you could almost have done. I mean, and we're, we're back to one of these situations now with Amazon where it's almost could function as a public utility uh, in that meaning um, you could just tell Amazon fix up a mask problem. Uh, you could even, if you had to, pay them to do it. I mean, I get that you don't want to just throw costs on people and tell them to sort sort that out. That would have been a much better use of public support than many uh, uses of uh, direct aid to businesses and things like that. Um, yeah, I was going to say, do you see the um, issue with the issues around testing now as uh, having parallels to the issues around um, masks and the lack of masks? Um, yeah, I mean, it's like they blew it just completely. And they didn't, they should have ramped up the testing and guaranteed that. That's presumably what that uh, guy who was supposed to be the czar for COVID should have done. I think Zintz, I think is his name. Um, and uh, they didn't. And you know, they instead told everybody to just get vaccinated. And then they were slow, the CDC, but the administration has an impact on the CDC and vice versa. They, they misread the Israeli data. Uh, they just sat there when the, in the Israeli uh, have better general testing um, than uh, the US does. And when they figured out that booster shots were needed, our guys just sat around for some months and they're slow also on the uptake for uh, youth, in my opinion. Um, and so it's like they bet the house on, you know, vaccines. They're not they're, they're not re they were not for ages up on boosters, which means that, in effect, the percentages of people who are reported to be vaccinated are much less if you do net effective vaccination. Um, because they decay over time. Um, and so uh, they just comp comprehensively blew this and then Omicron popped up. They, and, and they should have moved as you know a big chunk of the rest of the world told them. They should have moved a lot faster to see to it that Moderna and other companies had to share their vaccines with poorer countries. Uh, now, it, given in the, the huge time lag, there are now a lot of candidate vaccines, which may be quite okay coming along. They need to make sure that those don't somehow get choked off, that somehow the FDA takes forever to approve them and things like that. Uh, I trust that will not happen. 
Um, but and of course, they were slow even on uh, trying to uh, scale up uh, on the treatments that were coming along. I mean, the the, the Trump administration not only put a lot of money into vaccines, it tried for treatments too. The treatment stuff didn't work out nearly as well as the vaccines, but they have come along with some. And you know, you, now you get you're in this crazy situation where there aren't enough tests to tell whether you've got Omicron or Delta. Um, then you need different medicines depending on which one you've got. And they can't tell either the testing and they don't have uh, the, um, the, the um, <clears throat> proper medicine. And, and then there's the horrors of the school policy uh, where, I mean, I and some other folks wrote a piece on that early on because when we saw the um, uh, the administration originally aimed for, I think it was around mid-March to start everybody back to school, that was clearly crazy. Um, I mean, they, they, they had, I mean, to give the administration credit, their first initial, their initial response, the, what you might call the big bang at aid and relief was a really good move. And they got money out there to states. So the states uh, took a long time to sort of get ready to do anything about it. Now, I, I would fault the administration's budget uh, implementation of that because they should have been pushing people to waive um, what, I'll, what I'll just refer to as legacy requirements for using the money. I, I quite understand why uh, schools, uh, I've worked on school policies in the past in testing things, and you, it's good reasons why you want a lot of financial checkpoints before you release money, because it's just like in the New Deal when somebody responded to John Maynard Keynes's complaints about slow American uh, aid distribution, just saying this guy has never been in the United States and can't understand how just vast sums will disappear uh, into somebody's bag, just like that. But in the testing story in schools, You've got uh, schooling is dominated by most places except the big private institutions, um, for which are very expensive. It's dominated by legacy test stuff that's very expensive. There's lots better testing, cheap tests. And it was also the, the uh, various regulatory agencies took forever to approve those. They should not. The, some, of, some of these stories you can hardly believe. Uh, they tell people to do everything, then they misfile something and they're told to go back into the queue. Okay, bottom line on this if I, is the schools weren't ready to open. They've done nothing serious in most schools on ventilation. It's still a nightmare. And so you are having now, you know, with the Chicago teachers walking out, New York, uh, you've got the mayor telling them all they should be swaggering, but they're in fact dropping like flies. And in many other areas, you've got you know, the National Guard driving school buses in some places. It's crazy. And, and when you get that, and particularly when Omicron spreads like it has, uh, what happens uh, is that you know, nobody's learning in school, even if they're there. I mean, my neighbors are telling me in, that in large numbers of their teachers, they just they can't deal with it. They're, they're either uh, post-traumatic stress disorder or they really got COVID. Uh, and so you got large numbers of teachers, janitors, everybody's out. Uh, some parents with young kids withhold them because they know it's a problem. 
I mean, this, this was a foreseeable disaster. They didn't foresee it, and they sat there uh, just waving money wands uh, instead of getting down into the uh, question of, okay, how are you going to use this cash? The schools should have been told to do ventilation. They should have issued quick guidelines on this and stuff that would actually work. It's a no. It hasn't happened. So COVID just equals bad omen, I, I guess, for the Democrats going into uh, yeah. 2022. Could, could I also, look, mm -hmm. the, the progressive wing of the Democratic Party has largely defaulted on this too, though. Um, I mean, the, they were good. They never got any publicity on this, but they did, the Progressive Caucus did tell the Biden administration they wanted an OSHA person in that uh, in the follow-on period uh, after the transition. Uh, I know because I've seen some internal docs on that. Um, but in general, you have not had, I mean, you, folks are happy to get up there and talk about any number of issues, but the COVID disaster, OSHA, worker safety, apart from Bernie Sanders, they're not saying much. And they haven't. I mean, Elizabeth Warren could look just in the state of Massachusetts, too, to sort of see what a disaster uh, has happened here in Massachusetts, where in the school system, even the Boston Globe, which you know, just is pretty poor, I think, throughout all of this in 2020, uh, is finally saying, you know, the governor, who's a Republican, uh, needs to level about just how disastrous the situation is with the schools. Where's the progressive caucus on this stuff? They should be speaking out on it uh, much more vigorously than they have. And, you know, I'm, I'm only speaking anecdotally here, but speaking to workers in, in where I'm at in Pittsburgh, I mean, the stuff with OSHA has been, you know, just just it's been very difficult for laborers here, uh, which leads me to the next thing I wanted to talk about. Uh, your paper... Uh, that you co-wrote um, with Jurgensen and uh, Cheng also uh, delves into the role of the wave of protests we saw, and not just Black Lives Matter, but also uh, the Wildcat uh, strikes that uh, Payday Reports Mike Elk, uh, who I'm a big fan of, uh, has covered uh, very in depth. So what about the protests, both Black Lives Matter and these Wildcat strikes? What, what's yeah. their uh, role with regards to election 2020? Well, what we were doing was looking at what impact did they have in specific counties. Um, and yeah, we knew that was important. Um, I like Mike Elk's stuff too, um, a lot. I mean, they, so, um, well, uh, remember what we actually did there, which is we separate, we kept the labor, the, right. what we did is we looked closely at the round of, I'm going to call it wildcat strikes. Some, some of those were in fact endorsed by unions. They were not all wildcat. And there's been this endless controversy about, well, did you get them all? Probably not, but you got a big chunk of them. Uh, and um, been folks come claiming, well, we'd really like to have, you know, the Bureau of Labor Statistics definitions or something, but they, they miss all the small stuff. But then that Mike's point, the payday um, data are basically uh, about all the small stuff that mostly didn't get covered. In, I mean, it's gotten some press coverage now as strikes are abundant. This is a big difference between uh, 2020 and 2021, you can see the strike wave 
uh, has increased a lot. Now, my reading of that strike data is pretty much this, that because Trump completely defaulted and the Biden administration was slow and not very helpful in, in OSHA, though they were no longer working actively against uh, people trying to do uh, safety, uh, I think. Um, they, what uh, people effectively realized, you know, about the second day somebody drops next to you, you know you've got a problem. And so in effect, people were thrown on their own resources and a lot of people did went out on strike. I mean, when you look at those strikes, huge numbers of them uh, are just obvious safety. They're also pay. Now, the pay thing is quite interesting. And you can see right to this day, I have not seen a single account in any media anywhere among economists, not Furman, not Summers, not Krugman, not anybody, even sort of. What, what, what you actually have going on in this so-called great resignation is to a very considerable extent, what were previously fairly safe occupations, not so much meatpacking, which always had a high accident rate, um, but like daycare, when you normally would not think of as a really dangerous <laughs> occupation to be in, is in fact very dangerous. Um, and so the pay stuff is going to change, which is, I think, why you are seeing uh, the huge uh, changes. I mean, a lot of folks have noticed that there are very large increases in uh, pay in the, a lot of the worst paid uh, occupations. Not all of them, but I, I think that's basically the story is that, uh, and there's one paper that short, sort of shows you what happens when you go from uh, very... Um, among the safe occupations to very dangerous ones, pay's got to rise. Um, and if it doesn't rise, people will strike and start going around. Uh, the whole labor force thing will just set out for the side apart from that right now. But I want to stay focused on the strike thing. So um, if, now my, my take on um, the strikes uh, in some parts of the country, notably meatpacking and elsewhere, we, we didn't find the strikes particularly helped with the Democratic share of the vote. If anything, there's a very weak effect. Because I think what's going on there is we spend a good deal of time on agriculture in that paper. We're the only people that ever did this. You just, I have I, never I, I wanted seen, to talk about that next, yeah. so let's get I into that. I have never yeah. seen a paper on American agriculture. Uh, like, And it seemed to me that it was time that somebody needed to look at what was going on out there. I, um, I think in the paper, you call it Trump's uh, sort of ace in the hole, the, the farm yeah, and agriculture. Yeah, almost won it with it. But that's been a Republican and a conservative party ace in the hole all over the Western world. For 30, we'll, we'll come back to that. Let's stay on the, I want to work through the uh, protest side here first. Bottom line is, in a lot of farm, I mean, in, in meatpacking in particular, uh, meat and, and you know, chicken uh, carving and things like that, um, a lot, these used to be done in big plants. One is tempted to say in Milwaukee, which is a caricature of Chicago. Now they're dispersed all over the landscape, but they're out there in the hinterlands. And they are heavily Black and Hispanic workers. I would guess that there's probably a fair number of non-citizens out there, though I can't prove that if somebody wants to challenge it. Anyway, those folks, I think, when they strike, they're pretty isolated from the rest of the community, from the farm communities that are, in effect, profiting from that. Though, I mean, to their credit, a number of farm newspapers, newspapers in those towns, 
where I actually wrote up the case that just seemed to me outrageous, uh, where the uh, and one meatpacking firm, the management was taking bets on which workers would drop and how many would drop. Uh, you know, the uh, guys who've actually tried to sell testing to uh, firms tell me that the firms will tell them, look, if it's not mandated by federal law, we're not going to uh, require it. Um, I mean, I just, which is, you know, and that one guy at Amazon quit because he said there's no culture of safety in this company, um, re referring to the, you know, the low wage end of it, not the cloud end of Amazon. Okay. I mean, my, there, I think those in that area that probably work to unify the rest of the community. But in general, the big Black Lives Matter demonstrations, when you net those out with demonstrations on the other side, which is what we actually did, they worked a slight plus for the Democrats. I mean, in effect, it, you could, I mean, you could see, especially after the Washington, D.C. Capitol Bible, Bible waving thing that Trump did, um, an effort to provoke people to get them so he could order in troops. We don't have to guess about that. We now know from the post-election memoirs they were indeed contemplating look in the White House trying to do something like that. Well, they stopped that. Um, nobody went off, or very few people, relatively speaking, went off the deep end, and it turned out to be a net plus in the votes there. I mean, real, uh, real, real quick with regards to that, I, I know there's going to be people that uh, will say, well, you know, how can you say that when uh, defund the police? That was a bad slogan. You're not necessarily talking about these specific slogans, though. You're talking about uh, BLM as, effect, a, as a yeah. grander thing. Yeah. Yeah. What we, exactly what we tested, which was if you had demonstrations in your county, I mean, and they, you know, we counted them because we couldn't estimate the number of people. No way you can do that. Uh, we used the Princeton data set basically for that. Um, then the uh, there was a slight plus Democratic vote change impact on that. Um, I can well believe that if you start to parse those, whereas areas that were, were lots of strong Trump demonstrators, you could probably get some more results. It's one paper, guys. I mean, you know, that's we just couldn't do it uh, more there. So then I, I want to get into uh, uh, farms. Can we talk farms? Yes, I that's mean, what I wanted to get into. Yeah, next, okay. was agriculture and farming. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So look, <clears throat> the, what always impressed me about American politics is that it's, I mean, I, I mean, political science, political scientists have very little sensible to say about farm politics. Um, it's, and then you use polls, you can't usually get into questions about, well, which part of farming are you in? Like, are you doing apples, corn, stuff like that? When sectoral you factors, yeah. What's that? Yeah, I think you call it sectoral factors in the paper. Yes, yeah. that's right. They're sectoral factors. Exactly right. Yeah, what a surprise. It's just like, you know, the approach we often use in the industrial economy and the post-industrial economy. Sectors matter. Um, and, you know, when we did that regression on voting in the oil in 2016, man, that why was that news to people? And you still run into people that won't believe it or want to say, well, it's really all demography or it's all race or it's all. It is like crazy. I mean, come on, guys, open your eyes. Uh, just too lazy to sort of do the research that you need to get into checking it. OK, so it struck us uh, that's, you know, Paul and Ji Chen and I, 
uh, you know, we ought to really look at the farm sector. Now, how are we going to do that? That turns out to be really hard. This is another question you leave to the appendix, though, um, because the federal government masks a lot of data, uh, not just for agriculture, but for industry. And you got to deal with that. And we uh, were able to use in the industry part some data from folks uh, just produced to get around that masking problem. Agriculture was harder, but we mostly were able to do it. Anyway, bottom line on this is we could actually see where uh, crops, what kinds of crops dominated if you were in agriculture at all, obviously in cities, although you'd be surprised who's growing crops in some what looked like urban districts because they're there in the numbers. Um, and what we found was pretty straightforward. Trump started out uh, trying to keep a, a reaction, the reaction to a minimum of his trade wars with both the Europeans and China. Um, and at that time, you know, the New York Times and lots of the press filled the air with claims that farmers would soon turn on Trump. Well, they never did. And, you know, I admit it, I was very impressed by the old Sherlock Holmes story where the dog doesn't bark is the cue, uh, is the clue that you actually need to solve what's going on. And I didn't hear the dog barking uh, in the agricultural areas. I just didn't. Um, and uh, what's going on here? Um, and so it turned out, well, they had designed a big offset program for the farm. Then when COVID hit, they vastly multiplied that because the entire commercial restaurant part of the farm sales disintegrated. I mean, you know, we were not eating out. Uh, you know, we were either eating in, and you know, there, it turns out actually that there was a fair amount of um, problems just converting from commercial to individual stuff, um, which was one reason for all those shortages uh, in food. Anyway, but as they by 2020, as they were trying to dial down the uh, trade wars, um, they were kicking into high gear with various crop support schemes. And they started out with stuff that was targeted at a few uh, crops. And then the question was how to analyze that. And what we ended up discovering was, you know, guess what, where there were big, big sales to China, as in soybeans, corn silage, and things like that. Um, yeah, they were really showing uh, big payments, but they we couldn't, the ag department was just not releasing any numbers, but we could see the votes changing just using the crop measures percentages in there. And there were sectors, apples is the one that is real obvious, because the apple, if you're, I mean, there is a business press on apples. You know, how do you like those apples, you know, guys? I mean, they didn't like it. They were left out of that package. Uh, and they beat. And you can see that uh, in those apple areas. Um, and so this turned out, when you look at the totals, there was actually a couple cases where guys were said on the record for agricultural public exactly what they were doing that no, this wasn't a congressional program. It was one that Trump and the administration just put through. It was an expansion of the original trade support deal. And it was, you know, they said, and I think they're right, these were the biggest agricultural support programs ever. Um, and, you know, when you're trying to explain where does 74 million votes come from uh, for Trump, 
Well, you know, if you're pouring money into the rural areas of the United States in the farm areas like that, you're going to you're going to win a lot of votes. And I never had the giant counter reaction in the farm areas to Trump that people were confidently telling you they would have and that they had a small blip in 2018. I think there are some papers that show you they lost, the Republicans lost maybe four seats. Uh, on that, which is not a tremendous amount. And I, I think the lesson that Trump people drew from that was, let's just spend more. That's a language part. And the big, uh, we make a big point out of this in the paper. And it's very, very important that people take this point, um, which is, first of all, the agricultural folks uh, are, you've seen this situation where, uh, a few large farms dominate production. Now that has actually, it's a, I mean, this, there's been a steady decline in small farms, but the numbers are colossal in terms of output. Like most of the output is in the hands of just a very small number of large farms, even though there's lots and lots of small or part-time farmers, really huge amounts. I think a good deal of those may be uh, you know, sort of what used to be called gentleman or gentle lady farming um, and things like that. Or, and some of it may be uh, fairly expensive uh, green farming. Uh, but uh, in general, you're talking about big farm. They've driven small farmers that really live on farming as distinct from other income rolling have declined a lot um, there. And, and so that's, that's, um, sort of a crucial point. Then those big farms don't like organized labor. They don't like unions. I mean, unionization in agriculture is, you know, I mean, so the days of Cesar Chavez are way gone. I mean, you're dealing with very small percentages of unionization. And it, even the Trump administration found some immigrants were just fine if they could put them in programs that I think were really terrible programs for immigrants uh, on wages and working conditions um, there. Um, but the, basically, the, the, the big farmers are conservatives. They may be, in some cases, they may be conservative Democrats. Mostly they've been and mostly they vote conservative Republican for a long time. Um, they're anti-union. They're also very, very hostile to regulation of water um, and many chemicals. So that on e ecology, it's a very conservative gang of folks. All right, now picture this. You have a Republican party um, that is heavily still dominated by, well, old energy, legacy energy producers. We sort of walk you through that in the final part of the paper. The oil and the chemical people, sorry, the oil and the coal people in particular. Um, what you've got at the heart of the Republican Party in the United States is this legacy energy business uh, that throws money into the hinterlands where the agricultural folks come and they do a land office business uh, there. This type of thing, when you lift your eyes above the United States and look at, say, France uh, or Germany or Austria, uh, I think also in Spain and parts of Italy. This is the, this trick is turned all over. Uh, it's if you like urban big money business interests piling money into conservatively oriented interests out there. 
Now, we can carry this a step further to get the really come to the heart of the how crazy political analysis is in the United States now. You look at old states like Michigan, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, uh, Iowa. They used to be, I mean, they didn't, they were never totally Democratic, but they had very large Democratic vote polls. They often elected Democrats. They often elected liberal Democrats in the old American New Deal sense of liberals there. When you decompose what's going on there, it's pretty easy. You have manufacturing centers uh, with blue-collar workers who are voting Democrat on, you know, unionization, the National Labor Relations Act, social, you know, all the New Deal issues, and you've got small farmers who um, they're typically don't like being malted and driven out by the large farming and big agricultural interests of all type, which have proliferated in the last 25 or 30 years, including the financialization of commodities, which is. So, well, another thing we can sometimes discuss. Anyway, now what happens in the 50s, 60s, and especially in the 70s and 80s is the industrial jobs just get globalized and blown away. Um, or some of them shift. It's They're moved out or the technology changes. I mean, you can decide which one. You know, I, I think it's clear a lot of them went abroad. Uh, but uh, so it, the globalization just blows these people out in the industrial heartland. Um, in the agricultural heartlands, the small farmers get driven out. Now, trying to treat this in terms of education, which, you know, huge numbers. I mean, right now you open a major American paper and they're telling you about how education is the biggest predictor of whether you're Republican or Democrat. Come on. It's a, it's, we're talking about specific forms of wealth and sectoral interactions where the cash is made and what they do. This is not an education problem at all. Uh, it's an industrial change problem, the dynamics of industrial change and, and, in a broad sense, if you like, the dynamics of economic change and the creation of a dual economy that's throwing people off the land, often into the cities. Um, and in many cases, they are moving people. We are reversing the traditional pattern uh, of industrial growth where you... Uh, actually have, you know, you move people in the old story of a dual economy, to use the term my my, my co friend and co-author occasionally, Peter Temin, first broached, the dual economy and the new dual economy, you take people out of high-paying jobs in industry, highly and you throw them out into low-paying ones, and similarly, the farmers just get driven out. Now, then they go into the city, and then you will get, you know, several types of movements there. But in the in the farm areas, as these companies with their uh, like Amazon, with their logistic large scale logistics come in, they fill part of that gap. Those are not high paying jobs in general. Um, and I mean, then you get people feeling like, what's the state done for me? As all these people got rich, that I as I'm driven, you know, my whole job disappears. It's not surprising that folks then get suspicious. Uh, when folks come to them from the Democratic Party and say, we're going to give you a whole new package that will create jobs, although that was the one great idea that could have brought the Democrats back, that Green New Deal. You know, Pelosi and other people would not take it uh, under the impact very clearly of, I think, corporate de Democrats. Uh, and so we have a we now have a mess. Uh, they have a cut-down program to redo parts of the car industry 
and not a whole lot left, although the infrastructure bill has some serious stuff in it, but it's much smaller than they need. When you try to discuss these issues with people, uh, I often hear people uh, that, that are more on this, uh, I, I only read Nate Silver and whatnot kick where they'll say, no, everything's about political will. It's not about uh, the money and politics issue. Uh, how do you how do you sort of explain to people that are laymen or uh, new to these issues? How do you really drill it home that the money and politics issue is very important? Well, they're all right. <laughs> this, this is that that could practice. take an hour on its own. <laughs> no, no. Let's let's look. Do not. There is a limit. You know, you are throwing me a chocolate bar, uh, and I simply can resist anything except chocolate. Um, and I, and we don't have time for that. And so we got to sort of focus. It. So this is really a, a it's a what you're really asking me is a pedagogical problem. The first thing I want to say is you hear a lot more objections about money and politics in the media than most people have. The, every poll I know of that's at all reasonable does find that the population is extremely cynical about their politicians and, and money. Uh, and I mean, this is, this is something that the very rich and the media and American foundations, and American foundations generally love not to discuss and discourage the active discussion of it. I mean, so now then you have to sort of look for some, you know, nice, you have to look for some teachable examples, if I may say. Um, and, you know, one of them is the work that Jorgensen and Chen and I have done on linear models straight line models of congressional watch. It just turns out whether you like it or not. It's like, you know, look, I, I went through not only PhD programs, I, you know, I, nobody ever told me until we found it that uh, there was a sort of perfect linear relation at preposterously high levels of correlation between money and election outcomes. Now, people often miss that because they tried to do silly ways, like they would uh, try to figure out the cost per vote. But that varies hugely by type of district. You know, if you got mountains in West Virginia, you got a different cost to get votes than if you're a big urban thing and you could do in a TV, single TV, and et cetera. I mean, when you actually graph the percentage of cash uh, against the outcome, it turns out to be uh, a very straight line with a very high accuracy rate. And it's always true. It's true for every election we have ever gotten the data for from, which is really from 1980 on. Okay, now that, that leads to then the folks, you know, that's embarrassing by itself. Somebody, I, I, I'm waiting for a political scientist to get up and say, you know, we missed that. Or an economist to say, we missed that. Uh, they don't. Um, but all right, now the next question is, well, Rand, it runs the argument back. This is really because the money is following secret polls. Um, now, in fact, one counter is very simple. Look, most of these polls aren't secret. You can see it. So what we we did a couple of trick what one tr tricks. One was a very complex statistical model that tries to take account of that endogeneity, but the other one is very simple. We use we needed an approach. Uh, to 
how do we measure expectations of victory? And the answer, there's a long discussion about this, but I don't dispute where a lot of people have already come out with um, in so-called event analysis and economics, which is if you want a guide to conventional opinion, look at the gambling odds. Um, and so what we showed you in some we, a couple of cases in 2016 in particular, I mean, the Republicans were dead in the Senate with a like in late October, you could buy a contract. You can measure this stuff that way, the gambling odds. Um, for you pay seven bucks, you get a contract that would pay about a hundred, would pay a hundred for you, you know, in a couple of weeks. Um, that was how dead they were thought to be. The Republicans poured money into that Senate and saved the Senate from Mitch McConnell. I mean, that, um, and they had the other case we looked at to sort of test this acidly was the 1994 Republican sweep. The 1994 congressional takeover in the House where Gingrich swept to victory. I mean, you can also see this again in the gambling odds, though they, there, that was just a fact. I was around, I saw it, I've never forgotten it. People were astounded that they won uh, control of that, but they had poured money into that race in defiance of the odds, into lots of those races. Now, this doesn't mean you can predict every race, you can't, uh, you can't do it, but you can predict a lot of them. I mean, you got lots and lots of house races, which is why we love to study them. Senate races, you got a lot, but not nearly as many, because you know, you're only got a third or so of the Senate up every time. Anyway, that's one way to do it. The other is to just look at some uh, other ways that you can make this point. Um, one of them is the thing we did in another paper where we looked at, um, it's another INET paper, easy to find, it's a working paper. Um, it's also published in a book, but nobody's gonna get the book, but the uh, working paper, easy to spot. Um, where we took a matched set of representatives, matched in the sense that they had all voted for the Dodd-Frank reforms. And then we watched which ones backslid over the next few years. Um, so the, in, in this case, they're their own control. It's the same folks in more or less the same districts. Um, and you could match everything except for money. And then you can see the places, the guys that were taking the cash, the guys and the ladies, this is a thoroughly, uh, they were very happy to uh, hand out money on a completely gender-free perspective, as far as I can tell there. Um, and several Chicago area representatives were more than happy to take it. We wrote that point up. Um, the, the You can see that the folks that got tons of cash changed their votes to weaken Dodd-Frank. The folks that didn't, didn't. Um, I had an argument with one famous statistician. It's in, you know, it's out there uh, in print. Who tried to say, well, maybe they have uh, just a general tendency. Those folks who only go for this, maybe they really are just would be centrist at heart. I said that's fine. We actually have a little control variable in there for your tendency to go to the center. No, they went only in the center on the finance, uh, where they got the cash. I, I, I just think that's just. Uh, that's it. And then there are finally these cases, one of which I think is grotesque. Um, you know, just look at what this discussion between AOC and Pelosi uh, and others recently, where Pelosi, whose portfolio has grown well ahead of the market, as far as I can tell, since about 20, 2010. Right? That's often a news statement. I haven't examined it. Um, 
she says she doesn't see anything wrong with uh, folks who are congressional leaders writing legislation, playing the stock market as they do it. Yeah, I, I think Pelosi said something along the lines of, well, we are a capitalist country. You know. Yeah. Well, of course, we are not all capitalists is one point. And, you know, AOC promptly, to her great credit, just said, said this is completely unacceptable. I mean, look, this is the corporate democratic mantra in the end. It's that it's we we are a capitalist country, meaning we folks in Congress are going to act like capitalists. Now, if they were honest about it, you'd have a different Congress. You'd have a different congressional output. It's like, how stupid are we supposed to be when they finally say that to you? It's like that should have been an insult. Now, you know, I uh, no matter you know what you think or like, I saw some polls on that. They come out and you know, it was an overwhelming rejection of that view uh, in the polls. Does that make any difference to you know New York Times reporting about Pelosi? You know, you cannot find studies of congressional portfolios and how they change. They finally did mansion because he was getting in the way of Biden. And this was after whole ranges of people who should have known better were telling us, oh, of course, Joe uh, or the lady from Arizona, Sisama, would would never do this for money. Money was pouring into them. Anybody could see this. So before we close here, and I, I know I've kept you a few minutes over already, and I, I apologize okay. for that, but I, I wanted to briefly touch on this. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, right after the election, there were uh, a number of triumphant sort of articles that came out, uh, particularly two that I'm thinking of in Time magazine. Uh, one was called How Big Business uh, Got Woke and Dumped Trump. And then there was another one uh, with a very controversial title that I think they didn't need to use, but it was called uh, The Secret History of the Shadow Campaign That Saved the 2020 Election, which was really just about uh, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and activists from the AFL-CIO uh, sort of working together uh, against Trump. And I think a lot's been made of that. Oh, big business has turned on Trump, the elites. Uh, have turned on Trump. But I, I know we were talking before we went on air about uh, how certain elite elements may want uh, a sort of Trump light and that we may be seeing that uh, with the ascendancy of Glenn Youngkin. So I was wondering if you could uh, comment on all of that. All right. This is a tricky question. Well worth, unfortunately, <laughs> a separate interview for later. Don't worry. It's not going away. You'll, you'll be back, alas. Um, the um, point here is uh, the, the actual discussion, um, there was that type of discussion, though, but it's important to know what it was focused on, which was uh, getting Trump out of there if he lost, under the assumption he was he might not want to leave, you know, which it turned out to be exactly right um, there. Now, my take is that, um, as I've said, big chunk of the Republican Party, uh, uh, too, the Trump COVID antics did really turn a lot of people against him, though the story that big business as a whole turned against Trump, even in 2020, which I, I don't know how many people I saw complain, you know, people from the Financial Times, from the New York Times, from uh, academics who should know better. That's not true. I mean, we, you know, look, I, I knew when I saw them say this, I said, oh, what on earth is wrong with these people? Don't they realize what's going to happen in the final stages? Huh? 
The Democrats didn't do nearly as well as they thought they were going to do. But, you know, our linear model did turn out to be ranked for Congress uh, there. Um, the re big business hasn't abandoned the Republicans. It, most of it did abandon Trump um, there. Now, uh, the next question is, um, what, what about the future? Now, my read of this, I, I'm going to have to do this very quickly. I mean, I'll summarize a complex discussion. Even in 2019 and 2020, you could see some chunks of the business community moving towards supporting candidates further to the right than Trump. I mean, including some people who were openly preaching against democracy. And I mean, they were, they weren't, I mean, they just say, all right, those folks are still out there. They are not necessarily even Trumpians. But there is also this big movement centered on Trump, though that's largely a political story with a population base rather and, and, and with some some business support in sectors like oil, I think, that did and coal that, that do uh, like Trump a lot um, and continued contributing to him after the election as they were waging that campaign, though there is a very you know, after early, after uh, Thanksgiving, there was a fairly, uh, that diminished a bit. The whole business is more complicated. This is something that the House, pardon me, the uh, Congressional Committee investigating this should bring out all this out. They're not, as far as I can tell, investigating the financing of this. They're uh, going after the folks who were actually arrested in the uh, capital, which is a good thing to do, but the money question should get a lot more attention. I, mean, I, I was going to say, and I mean, we've had groups like ProPublica doing work on the, the financing. Yeah. I think they found that the heiress of the supermarket chain Publix uh, figures into that story and whatnot, but I, I haven't seen enough coverage of it. Yeah. Well, yeah, the, this business is complicated, but let me, let me, in order to give your query a sort of least a tentative resolution submission for this interview. Um, now, the thing right now is, yeah, I, if you, um, the other thing you want to pay attention, we haven't talked about some of the economic appeals. You could see in 2020 that in you got a very strange results in terms of economic growth. The areas that were doing least well in 2020 in the actual they tended to vote for Trump in higher percentages, which is, you know, you'd think the exact reverse normally. In other words, if you're doing badly with an incumbent president, the region would vote somewhat against him. No, they voted for him. And the other thing that we found in our paper and we sort of is that if you did especially well between 2016 and 2019, in other words, till COVID actually hits in 2020, um, your the vote for Trump would be correspondingly stronger. Uh, there. Now, that says that there is, you know, this economic growth issue uh, is still good for Republicans. Now, if you were willing to do more, of, and, and given the, the, the inflation problem, with uh, which is now, even though I, it's not like Biden just sat there and did nothing, is I repeat, the big bang that he started out with really did send substantial sums of money to people who needed it, a lot of people who needed it. But now you're, you know, that that uh, the pandemic support stuff 
either in the Trump ver the pre-Biden version or the post-Biden versions are now nearly gone, except for student loan deferrals and the aid on medical spending, though with the important exception of the balanced billing business, it's which has actually been cor corrected a bit. Um, the been corrected large, uh, not it's, it's complicated. They left out ambulances and I don't need to be told why that was, but that's a separate discussion. Uh, it's just a bad idea. It shouldn't have happened. Um, but the uh, all that aid is gone uh, or nearly so. And so you're going to be looking at a lot of suffering folks. That situation is made to order for a case like Virginia. Now, in a, the Times in particular, less so the Post, tended to concentrate on critical race theory as the claimed reason for that vote. Yeah, and my understanding was the reason was economy and education, and education doesn't necessarily mean critical race theory. That's right. No, it's because it's, it's, I mean, lots of people made the point critical race theory wasn't taught in Virginia. There were, this, all right, let's, let's do the big picture. I'll add some fine print on that and then finally try to come back to the big point. And then we got to stop because I'm running up against a hard deadline uh, here. Um, but I, I got, you know, 15 minutes or so, so we'll, we'll manage. Um, in the when you look at how education cut in the Virginia polls, it's actually only it's not that big for the Republicans. It's seven or eight points. I mean, in other words, a lot of people were voting for the Democrats on that issue. Um, that said, there were lots of problems in some districts. Now, a lot of that, I think, is uh, actually about um, the problems schools had under COVID. And we're, you can see that they have just been badly hit almost everywhere. Almost nobody is able to cope with the deluge of health problems, the lack of cash early on, the ventilation problems, the extra medical things, um, and the fact that you're having to do so much remote. That's messed up the whole school system. There's no discussion of this right now going on that's at all sensible. Um, and it's like, it's, I'm not trying to blame the teachers. That's not what I'm telling you. You know, if you tell, give them no masks, no ventilation, I mean, what do you expect? People can't deal with it after a while. But they are going to need a discussion of this in the Democratic Party that it's just not happening. And the only discussion out there is in terms of this silly critical race theory thing. But that's discussion out there. And there, you know, so this is not this. And there are many groups now organizing locally about this. Uh, around the country on right-wing cash, especially from the Cokes and others. So uh, it's a problem. Um, all right, so the edge, but what actually killed the Democrats in, if you look at the polls, just it doesn't require a genius. I mean, people, a, a very substantial chunk, something like 35% or so of the electorate, or just a couple of polls uh, said, well, it's, it's the economy. And another 12 or so, 15% said taxes. But then you look underneath uh, that a bit, and what you find is um, the Republican, who was a private equity, former private equity executive, was running on a campaign uh, to get rid of the tax on food. Now, that has actually been a populist Democratic issue in Virginia. Uh, for I mean, 30 years ago, it was a big deal. Uh, but, you know, the Democrats since haven't done, I mean, Wilder, I think, talked about it, didn't do anything about it. Uh, nobody else even talked about it on the Democratic side. 
Um, and so the Republican gets up there and says, let's cut the tax on food. And inflation is a big concern. And he made his people are openly wrote that wrote it in an op-ed in the Washington Post. Uh, just said, yeah, we knew inflation was a, by June, we'd centered on uh, inflation as the big story. Um, and the, the combination of, you know, the way COVID screws up, not just schools and people, but the economy and the inflation issue means the Biden people are heavily at risk. And they're sort of largely missing the boat on this. Um, and uh, they got to they got to come up with something better. Now it does not help that both food and fuel are the main components of much of that rise. Not all of it used. We all know about used cars, for example. Uh, but you know, look if if you drop, I mean, Youngkin in Virginia ran with a uh, a black woman candidate. Now, they were not formally paired. They run separately. But the Republican ticket as a whole was that. If, you, if they drop some of the race baiting, I think they'll still do dog whistles. That critical race theory is the dog whistle of dog whistles, I think, right now. Um, but but uh, you're going to find, I mean, you, Trump made substantial inroads into the Hispanic vote and a tiny blip in inroad into the Black vote. Um, my reading is largely on the economy, though. I mean, the number of people claiming values, I, I we discussed that in the paper. I'm just going to drop it over the side because we don't have time. Bottom line on this is I think there is a considerable scope for, uh, if you like, Trump light. Yeah. But, you know, with it just getting some of the poisonous uh, race baiting, dog whistling stuff, re reducing it. Is likely to make those guys look fairly attractive in a case of democratic failure. And, and you know, I would caution since we are on the edge of, I mean, the Kabul business did not, that's the, 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 the chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan did not help Biden. It was the beginning of his slide in the polls. Um, we're now eyeball to eyeball, as the saying goes, with the Russians over Ukraine. I mean, the possibility that you're looking at effectively another Jimmy Carter, you know, who was a terrific ex-president, but, you know, inflation, foreign policy problems, and just general inability to cope domestically brought that, made that a one-term administration. That's at least a serious possibility uh, with Biden. Um, and I think it does not help that only a few unions have stood up on this worker safety question. I mean, Trump was clear as long as he was alive that you should wear masks. I'm not clear where the AFL-CIO leadership is on this. Some of the construction unions have been quite opposed to some safety stuff. Uh, there needs to be a much more focused. The only optimistic or uh, optimistic are well, the chances of this, not high, I think, but I mean, when Roosevelt's first New Deal fell apart in 1934, it's just like that old piece of mine on normalcy, the New Deal and Golden Rule. Uh, this didn't come about because a great American president far-seeingly looked ahead and led the population. Organized labor got busy. The, the AFL split. The CIO came out. Um, a vigorous organizing drive. And then parts of the 
industry, especially capital intensive parts, especially the oil industry, needed oil price control, which Roosevelt gave them in the summer of 35, along with the Wagner Act. I've told this story before. I mean, it's not a, qua a case of uh, the great president saved you. That's not what happened. Um, you know, you're going to have to save yourself or nobody will. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. I want to thank you again, uh, Thomas Ferguson. We'll have to have you back on in the future, but I know you have to get going now. Thank you. Thanks. A pleasure. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Thomas Ferguson and that you'll consider reading the new working paper that we discussed on this edition of the show at the Institute for New Economic Thinking. It's entitled The Knife Edge Election of 2020, American Politics Between Washington, Kabul, and Weimar. You can find a link to that in the episode description. As always, if you appreciate the work I do here, please consider supporting me at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. There, you can help the show by making a monthly donation of $1, $10, or $100. And at the $10 tier and above, you will receive a producer's credit shout-out. So, producer's credit shout-outs to... Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The War Nerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Fabian, Elliot, Colin, and Matthew Ho. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, consider joining those listeners in supporting me at the $10 tier or above at patreon.com slash views. Again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It is you, the listener, alongside a few of our great sponsors that help keep this show going. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views. With Jerlax View to Parallax Jerlax View with Jerlax The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. It's nothing else. If we don't do it, others will be doing this like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm. I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff 
It's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.